The Great Lakes are massive, 94,000 square miles of unsalted liquid, making up nearly a quarter of the world's surface fresh water. Each are interconnected, and so are the stories of those who sail our inland seas. Today on the show, I have one of my favorite rescue tales, and I'll share how it's part of a story that begins with a huge forgotten gale in 1872. It's connected with a dramatic rescue in 1897 and a recent search by a beachcombing author who's still snorkeling for details. All that and some amazing music from Dan Hall. I'm Rick Mixter, and this is Mixteries. Well, it's just my luck to have the watch with nothing left to do. Watch the deadly waters glide as we roll north to the Sioux And wonder when they'll turn again and pitch us to the rail And whirl off one more youngster in the game The kid was so damn eager, it was all so big and new We never had to tell him twice to find him work to do and evenings on the mess deck He was always first to sing And show us pictures of the girl he'd wed in spring But I told that kid a hundred times Don't take the lakes for granted They'll go from calm to a hundred knots So fast they seem enchanted But tonight some red-eyed Wyrton girl Lies staring at the wall and her lover's gone into a white squall. Now it's a thing that us old timers know in the sultry summer calm. There comes a blow from nowhere and it goes off like a bomb. And a 15,000 tonner can be thrown upon her beam while the gale takes all before it with a scream the kid was on the hatches lying staring at the sky from where i stood i swear i could see tears fall from his eyes so i hadn't the heart to tell him that he should be on a line even on a night so warm and fine But I told that kid a hundred times Don't take the lakes for granted They'll go from calm to a hundred knots So fast they seem enchanted But tonight some red-eyed Wyrton girl Lies staring at the wall And her lover's gone into a white squall When it struck, he sat up with a start I roared to him, get down But for all that he could hear I could as well not made a sound So I clung there to the stanchions And I felt my face go pale As he crawled hand over hand along the rail Now I could feel her healing over With the fury of the blow I watched the rail go under then, so terrible and slow. Then like some great dog, she shook herself and roared upright again. While overside, I heard him call my name. But 
I told that kid a hundred times, don't take the lakes for granted. They'll go from calm to a hundred knots, so fast they seem enchanted. But tonight some red-eyed Puritan girl lies staring at the wall, and her lover's gone into a white So it's just my luck to have the watch with nothing left to do But watch the deadly waters glide as we row north to the Sioux And wonder when they'll turn again and pitch us to the rail And whirl off one more youngster in the game And I tell these kids a hundred times don't take the lakes for granted They'll go from calm to a hundred knots, so fast they seem enchanted. But tonight some red-eyed Wyrton girl lies staring at the wall, and her lover's gone into a white squall. just heard Dan Hall's fantastic rendition of White Squall, a song written and performed so masterfully by Stan Rogers in 1984. I often wonder who would name their ship Storm, Tempest, or White Squall, but it happened quite a bit. Perhaps it was a challenge to the gales that the ships would ultimately take on during their career. Of course, the schooner White Squall would face at least two damaging storms in her career, launched by John Odes in Clayton, New York in 1853. It was a smaller two-master, which lost a jib in a white squall eight years after she was launched. The gale that eventually took the ship for good was a massive series of storms that hit the Upper Great Lakes on September 28, 1872. This massive storm started out in the Upper Missouri Valley, a series of low-pressure readings that led meteorologists to make predictions that it would intensify and head into the Great Lakes. It would accelerate to an average of 30 miles per hour, cutting a huge path 2,400 miles wide and moving into Canada in just 84 hours. Heavy rain poured from Detroit to Milwaukee. Even more was dumped on Alpena, Michigan to Toronto, Canada, and the winds raged on Lake Huron where Captain swore it was the worst storm in a quarter century. Telegraph offices soon transmitted weather probabilities that warned of diminishing pressure and rain for the upper Great Lakes. Twelve hours before the gales raged, a warning clicked out in Morse code. The Superior Times called the gale the Great Equinoctial of 1972, named because some meteorologists believed at the time it was the equinox of planets that caused havoc on our weather. Over 61 sailors were lost, and 27 boats, a collection of tugs, steamers, and schooners were destroyed. Sixty more vessels were beached in the Tempest, which smashed into the Tawas and Harrisville area on Michigan's east coast. White Squall was being pulled through the gale by the tug Prindeville. The long tow line connecting it to the tug broke, and the Squall crashed into a second barge called the Libby Now. The Now would survive the ordeal, but the Squall was leaking badly just off Fish Point, Michigan, in Lake Huron. 
Crewman Frank D. Root, a young sailor with quite a bit of saltwater experience, lashed himself to the yawl boat as the squall dove under. He was cast out in the raging lake for hours to be found and returned to his home in Chicago. His captain and crewmates were all lost. We'll chat more about Frank D. Root and his amazing career a bit later. Near where the white squall plunged, the schooner Corsair broke up with only two survivors making it ashore to tell the tale. Second mate Thomas Grady and seaman Thomas Foley lashed themselves to a piece of the quarter deck until the steamer City of Boston found them. 36 hours later, the barge Table Rock smashed into Tawas Point near the lighthouse with only one survivor. Neshota was lost with all five crew. A 143-foot schooner, the George Whitney, was lost with eight lives. The Whitney had been sunk a month earlier near Vermilion, Ohio. Her trip on Lake Huron would be her last. The schooner Rapid would be lost with seven of her crew near Rondo, Ontario. Only crewman James Lowe survived, picked up after floating for 60 hours on Lake Erie. Of these wrecks, only a few have been found. Corsair lies shattered on the bottom of Lake Huron, and the Table Rock has been known for over a century as a wreck on Tawas Point. High water levels have hidden the rock from recent discovery, though. After sloshing around the point for about three hours, Wes Olaszewski is finding nothing more than wet feet in a piece of coal where the schooner barge once lay. Oh, it was highly frustrating. It was, I think we, we covered every inch of that area where the Table Rock lives and uh, she just couldn't be found, so apparently she's covered by the sand. The ship has been here since that killer storm in 1872 and Wes and his brother remember exploring its broken remains as youngsters. We were up to our knees today, and uh, the last time I was out here on the Table Rock, it was high and dry. You could actually go stand on it. Exploring might seem like the most exciting part of shipwreck investigation, but Wes likes diving into research even better. My favorite part is actually the detective work. I, I like solving the mysteries, I like finding the, the new questions. So that's, that's my favorite part. This is my second favorite part, is coming up here on the lakes, getting my feet wet, and uh, digging things out of the sand that people find on their beaches, that's, that's the second part because it's very exciting when you have a little piece of wood sticking out and you find yourself a rudder or something like that. Wooden timbers lie on the beach and many are scattered just under the water. Simple boards that could be maybe from an old dock. Wes picks up a random piece for a closer look and he knows it's pretty old. Wes, what do you got? Well, Mr. Rick found this in the site that should belong to the uh, May Queen. Wes doesn't get to visit many of the places he's written about. After all, he's authored over a dozen books on shipwrecks. There's so much that has to be done on just paper and paper archaeology, but it's really good to get out in the water and slosh around a bit and try to find good stuff. Why is that so important to, to kind of be there, especially for Table Rock? It's a story, does it make it come alive a little bit more? Or? It, it brings the story up personal. It's, it's one thing to put yourself in the place of the, uh, of the crew and, uh, and those who perished and those who survived, but it's another thing to actually stand there on the site and, uh, and see exactly what is left of, uh, of that disaster and then kind of wind your mind back for uh, 150 or so years. Tawas Point is a good place to find those historic events. Over a dozen shipwrecks are found in the area. It was so dangerous the government put a life-saving station here in addition to the lighthouse that marks the peninsula, originally known as Ottawa Point. It's a Native American name that's believed to be from Chief Ottawas. The name eventually became Tawas. For Wes and his family, it was a summertime destination from his childhood home in nearby Saginaw County. 
We started uh, vacationing here uh, in the summer of 1977, and we found out that it was literally a, a paradise in mid-Michigan. So uh, we came back as, as often as possible, and uh, there was far less here than there is now. There was no beach house, there was uh, fewer trailers, and uh, the bathrooms were somewhat rudimentary, but uh, then when we got out here on the water, we've, we discovered a lot of different things. Today, he's back with his young family exploring the waves. But don't call this research a vacation. Well, as an author of Great Lakes stuff, we never use the, the word uh, vacation when I come to Michigan because it's deductible. So uh, <laughs> I came here for business, working today with, uh, with Rick, and uh, uh, the kids just happened to be here. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Olaszewski became an author at the same time he took up his vocation as an airline pilot. Turns out there's a lot of downtime after making a flight, and the destinations allowed him to dig in libraries and museums all around the United States. Time in a hotel room was spent writing stories about shipwrecks, airplanes, and cartoons about ants. It was a distraction from uh, flying because that's, that was my career, and somebody told me uh, very early on in my career I needed to find a distraction. That was it. It's a good distraction. I'd, I started my first book while I was working my way through college and wrote it out on longhand on... Uh, legal pad. My wife, who's then my fiance, took it into the student newspaper office and put it in computer text and we sent it off so it could get immediately rejected. <laughs> and now they're some of the best sellers. Yeah, uh, so two years later I sent that manuscript into Avery Color Studios in Marquette and by gosh they uh, sent me a check. So next thing I know I was an author and they immediately asked for the second book. I said I already had it and we put that into computer text and I had two books almost immediately so I was on my way. That number is now nearing 20 books, with a World War II history on the Great Lakes now on sale, and a fiction novel, Invisible Evil, just released. You can find his books on Amazon.com, where he encourages you to leave a review. Back on the beach, the search continues. A Google Earth image promises a better location for the wreck, but it will have to wait until next summer. The final chapter of The Table Rock remains to be written, but the story of the 1872 storm continues to intrigue. Remember the survivor from the White Squall that we talked about at the beginning of the show? Frank D. Root continued sailing for many years. Born in Green Bay on October 7, 1849, it seemed his life was destined to be on the water. He sailed the ocean as a cabin boy and eventually a deckhand until 1867. Then he crewed on the schooner's ACMA and the bark Jesse Hoyt until joining the schooner barge White Squall for that terrifying trip in 1872. He became captain in 1878 and took command of the bark Unadilla. He was the first captain on Minnesota steamships Minola, which ironically became half a shipwreck 38 years after his command. Root took the maiden season on the first steel steamer built at South Chicago, the Maritana but it was his time on the fleetmate Mariposa that brought him the most headlines. Let's go back to early November 1897. The wooden steamer Idaho was brought out of mothballs as requests for late-season merchandise were piling up. It was an older ship and had been tied up at the end of Commercial Street in Buffalo for several months, but Western Transit Company needed a ship, and Idaho was overhauled. The Idaho made it about halfway across Lake Erie when a storm slammed into the ship near Long Point, Ontario. The captain realized his mistake to pass the protection of the point. He ordered the Idaho to turn around in the building waves. About 12 miles from the point, the boilers were doused by what the deckhand explained as a mountain of foaming water. 
and the entire crew formed a line to try to bail the water out. The waves had fun with us, second mate Louis LaForce would remember. With no power, they were at the mercy of the waves, and the captain ordered the anchor dropped. This should have swung their nose into the storm, but the hook wouldn't grab Lake Erie's mucky bottom. The order to abandon ship eventually followed, and crewman Louis Gilmore went below with a lantern. The mate watched the glow of that light tragically get snuffed out as other crewmen rushed to exit the ship. Gilmore was trampled to death, and most of the men below drowned as the water creeped over the rail. 23-year-old deckhand William Gill climbed up the mast to try and escape the rising water of Lake Erie. He was joined in this perch by the second mate. For nine hours, sleet slashed at their tightly gripped hands as they hung on for dear life on the mast 25 feet above the raging waters. They watched several ships pass in the night, but no one spotted them until noon the next day. It was Captain Frank Root aboard the Mariposa who said his first mate spotted the men clinging to the rigging. The captain watched as the Idaho's mate waved his hat in desperation to be discovered. Lifeboats were no option in the high waves, and it took three attempts to skillfully move the 330-foot freighter into position to pluck the Idaho's survivors from the mast. For God's sake, hurry up, LaForce told rescuers. His arms were frozen in place, and with a good tug, the mate and crewmen were over the rail and into a warm cabin aboard the Mariposa. Their faces were purple from the cold, their teeth chattering from exposure. I had never seen Lake Erie in a worse mood, Root would tell reporters. The name board of the Idaho, along with some mattresses, two chairs, and a Bible washed ashore near Washington Avenue Dock in Buffalo. Root was heralded a hero and was given a month's salary as a bonus from his company. The rest of the crew received a half-month's salary. On November 14th at Lyceum Theater in Buffalo, the players performed a benefit performance of On the Bowery for the 16 lost crew and the two survivors of the Idaho. Captain Root would make his life on shipwreck soon after. He moved from Chicago to Michigan's Upper Peninsula, taking over the Great Lakes towing office there. He was in charge as several shipwrecks were salvaged and part of an international scandal when his company was accused of robbing a wreck. The steamer Wissahickon ran aground on Duck Island in Lake Huron in December of 1909. It was Great Lakes Towing who removed most of the crew and began salvaging the general merchandise on board. Canadian courts would later charge this was a robbery and they attempted to extradite Captain Root in 1912. Records are scarce on what happened, but the shipwreck was removed by Root's team to sail again. The only other record I found from Root was that he died in Sault Ste. Marie, near where his father had served as an army officer at the Rapids. Francis D. Root was buried in Green Bay in 1925. If you want to learn more about shipwrecks, I encourage you to check out my website at lakefury.com. I have several short stories on the greatest lake gales, and I'll post notes from today's show. You'll also find my tour schedule as well, and feel free to buy a book or DVD. Of course, each purchase goes right back into air in my scuba tanks or gas in the car to do research. I'll leave you with another song from Dan Hall, an original called Final Run. You can find his music online at danhall.com. Please join me next time for amazing true stories of wrecks and rescues. I'm Rick Mixter, and these have been... Great Lakes
From the safe shore to the channel Then to open rising water Sailors made their way preparing For November's final run Soon the winter ice would seize them So they raced the coming season Sailing out for that one reason Where the monster had begun To dig its claws into the waters When the mighty winds tracked eastward each barometer fell sharply as the ships were battened down. Run to shore or face the demons, each brave captain made decisions. And the sailors' prayers were driven by the roaring of the sound. Final run, the anchor raises, final run, the engines forward. Final run, they're headed out into the thickening spray. Dark clouds roll, the storm is lashing. Mountain waves ahead are crashing. Hold her steady in that thrashing. Final fury. Steady in that thrashing final fury. 